There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout. Whatever documents a president decides to take with him, he has the right to do so. It's an absolute right. This is the law. Mm, nope. Gonna have to correct you there, Donald. That is, in fact, not the law, which is how you ended up in a court of law just yesterday. Plus, gaslighting efforts kick into high gear on the right with false equivalencies flying fast and furious all over Fox. And later, the great Rachel Maddow joins me to talk about Trump's indictment and her amazing new podcast that takes listeners back in time to news events eerily similar to those we are experiencing today. But we begin tonight on Donald Trump's birthday. He turned 77 years old today. Happy birthday, you twice indicted, twice impeached, found liable for sexual abuse, former president. I'm sure it's been an interesting one. A day of reflection, perhaps, on what matters in life, like family, good health, community, or not. I mean, this is Donald Trump we're talking about. So what matters in life are things, gold toilets, celebrity tchotchke collections, gold bathroom chandeliers, gold stuff on the walls in the gold ballroom, or the Shaquille O'Neal sneaker he bragged about to a Wall Street Journal reporter back in 2015. This is Shaquille O'Neal's shoe. Oh, my God. Right here, which is a serious shoe. Is that shoe. a real That's shoe? That's a real shoe. He took it off after a game and handed it oh to me. Oh, my God. I carried it like this. Yeah, I, so I guess. Because you don't really is, like germs anyway, do you? No. Yeah, from How Shaq. Yeah, but it's a serious shoe. I mean, we've always known this about Trump, right? That he's kind of a, a weird old hoarder guy with the taste level of a mega millions lotto winner from the 1980s mashed up with that guy you went to high school with who still wears the letter jersey from his 11th grade football championship. It explains why he would leave office with a mania to cling to physical icons of power. Trump sees classified documents the same way he sees Shaq's shoes, the ultimate trappings of presidential fiat. Evidence that he held that powerful office and no one can forget it. So when it came to these boxes, he couldn't believe his luck. Talk about shiny new objects, brighter than a Saudi orb. Military papers and intelligence briefings he got to show off. The way that the youngins need to document everything for the gram. He literally, clearly wanted to hang on to them, kind of like Gollum and his precious, only it's my boxes. Ornamental nuclear secrets? Chris Christie, who's running against Trump for president, has something to say about that. He cannot live with the fact that he lost to Joe Biden. He can't live with it. He wants to continue to pretend he's president. He wants the trappings of the presidency around him. And I think one of those trappings is these documents that he can wave around to people as they detail in the indictment. In addition to being weird about stuff, Trump is also a really bad legal client. In March, Sean Hannity offered Trump a lifeline that went awry. 
I can't imagine you ever saying, um, bring me some of the boxes that we brought back from the White House. I'd like to look at them. Did you ever do that? I would have the right to do that. There's nothing wrong with but it. But I know you. I don't think you would do it. Well, I don't have a lot of time, but I would have the right to do that. Right. I would do that. There'd be All right, let me wrong. move on. No, 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 Sean. I totally did it. I'm totally guilty. I did it. About a month later, his legal team tried to get him out of trouble again, sending this letter to Congress saying they'd seen absolutely no indication that Trump knowingly possessed any of the marked documents or willfully broke any laws, blaming the mishap on haphazard records keeping and packing by White House staff. Trump then managed to screw those attorneys over with these remarks at his disastrous CNN town hall. Just so you understand, I had every right to do it. I didn't make a secret of it. I took the documents I'm allowed to. The agony of being a Trump attorney. He's allowed to do it, he thinks. It's his basic defense. Everybody does it. And I can do it because I'm still kind of the president. Like when you're a star, they let you do it. But it wouldn't be Donald Trump without undercutting his defense again. The exact same day he pleaded not guilty, he used his post-arraignment speech at his golf club, tricked out like a fake White House, to again admit he did it. Many people have asked me why I had these boxes. Why did you want them? The answer, in addition to having every right under the Presidential Records Act, is that these boxes were containing all types of personal belongings, many, many things, shirts and shoes and everything. I hadn't had a chance to go through all the boxes. It's a long, tedious job. It takes a long time, which I was prepared to do, but I have a very busy life. I've had a very busy life. You know what former FBI general counsel Andrew Weissman calls that thing that Trump just said and all his other pretend defenses? A confession. One thing that's important for everyone to know is those statements that you just played are admissible as admissions, regardless of whether Donald Trump takes a stand or not. Those are admissions. Um, so that is part of what he said is just a straight out confession. Um, it's not a defense. It's a confession. When you are charged with the illegal retention, take the possession, the legal possession of documents, it is not a good idea to say, Hey, you want to know why I took these? Because I could. Mm -hmm. That is not a defense to that charge. That is an admission to that charge. Joining me now are former Missouri Senator and MSNBC political analyst Claire McCaskill, former acting assistant U.S. Attorney General for National Security, Mary McCord, and former assistant district attorney for Manhattan, Catherine Christian. I I'm going to start here at the table and, and just go through what you just heard, those three bites of Trump, because it sounds to me like his defense is I did it. Yes, he's, as Andrew said, it's, he's had multiple confessions he's made. His public statements are the gift that keeps giving for prosecutors or plaintiff's attorneys. Every time he speaks, I'm sure his attorneys say, please don't speak, please don't, and he just keeps doing it. So he's admitted that he had the documents. And he contradicts himself also, because he said that he didn't look through the boxes. Right. So, well, clearly he did, because there's an audio tape of him at the same golf club, you know, apparently waving around a document and then saying on it, well, it's confidential. And I could have just declassified it when I was president, but I didn't. So he is just completely inconsistent. But he's given multiple confessions in this case. If you had someone on the stand in front of you as a prosecutor and there were previous statements recorded that they'd recorded all over the place saying, I totally did this. 
Would you even have to put them on the stand? Could you just use their prior statements as the equivalent of putting them on the stand? Well, you mean cross-examination? Yeah. Well, if he, and I can't imagine he would, but if he ever took the stand, it would be a dream for anyone who's cross-examining him (laughs) because he would have his direct examination and then you would just say, isn't it true on this date you said this? And you would just pull up the videos of him one after another, after another. um, And it speaks for itself. It's it's okay, Mary McCord, let me let let me go to you on this, because this is Trump's other uh, defense. And he has been using this a lot. And I think for people who don't know the law and aren't familiar with it to them, it probably sounds credible. Here's Donald Trump uh, giving the Presidential Records Act defense. I had every right to have these documents. The crucial legal precedent is laid out in the most important case ever on this subject known as the Clinton Sox case. In other words, whatever documents a president decides to take with him, he has the right to do so. It's an absolute right. This is the law. Mary, please fact check that. Well, it's not the law. It's not whatever documents the the president decides to take with him when he leaves the Oval Office are his documents. The Presidential Records Act explicitly made clear in law that presidential records, records of official business that are not just purely personal records, are not the president's property. They're not the former president's property. They are the public's property. They are the government's property. And so that's why the National Archives reached out to Donald Trump after he left uh, the White House from Mar-a-Lago and said, we need all of these records back. You know, when they first reached out, they weren't necessarily suspecting that there were classified information in those boxes. They just knew they were presidential records and that it was their duty as the, as the archivists to go through the boxes. And if there was anything in there that was not an official record that did not meet the definition of presidential records, well, then they would send it back to Mr. Trump uh, as personal information. But he does not get to just call his own anything that he wishes. That's not in the law at all. And I do think sometimes the reason he keeps making these omissions, besides the fact that he can't control himself and he can't ever admit he did anything wrong, is I think he's trying to sort of convince the population um, that he had no intent to break the law. He was just trying to, he was just complying with the law. The problem is that's based on a legal fiction. You know, Claire, first of all, You know, saying it was in with my socks and my clothes is not the own Donald Trump thinks it is because, you know, Republicans are trying to argue that the our top secret and nuclear information was safer in his gold bathroom than it was in Joe Biden's garage. But if you're saying that your, you know, your care for national security is limited to you throwing national security information in a box with your socks and clothes, doesn't sound like you care too much about national security. And yet Republicans are trying to make this make sense. The, the biggest problem the Republicans have is they are actually trying to pretend that Donald Trump is getting indicted because he took documents. That's not why he's getting indicted. The, the archives, they wanted him to return the documents. This took so long because they were giving him every opportunity to do what Joe Biden and Mike Pence did immediately. Hey, they're here. Take them. Come look all you want. I don't want any of them. And, and we don't even know if any of those documents were serious in terms of national security implications. That's not what happened here. Donald Trump, they said, please give them to us. He said, eh. Then they said, well, we really mean it. Please give them to us. And he said, eh, nah, they're mine. Then they subpoenaed them. 
And he said, yeah, I'll give you some. And then meanwhile, he's telling his lawyers, can't we just make him disappear? He's telling his staff, go hide him. He is lying because he wanted to keep him for two reasons. One, he's an insecure braggart. And two, I think he thought he could monetize him in some way. Because at the end of the day, with Trump, it's either about one thing, money or lying. Uh, Mary McCord, let me just go back to you just for one moment, because you you worked in the National Security Division. And so you are, you know, personally familiar with the frequency of prosecutions for this under the Espionage Act of people high and low. You know, some guy that's a, you know, a National Guardsman or whatever that goes in and gets stuff. Reality winner was trying to help her country. Um, you could go on and on and on. If Trump had given the documents back, do you think that he would have been indicted? No, I don't. Um, you know, that would have been more like the situation of Mike Pence and the National Security Division and the Department of Justice have just recently sent a letter to his attorney saying we are closing this investigation because it was a mistake there. And when he realized he had them, he gave them back. What happened here, Donald Trump is not even charged with taking them, despite right. the fact that he has now admitted he took them. He's charged with retaining them after he was requested to give them back. And then, of course, he's charged with a, a bunch of different obstructive conduct. And that's what makes this case so different than the Pence and Biden cases. But it also that's also the reason he was prosecuted. And in other cases, there, that's often been a similar thread there. Some kind of lying about the documents once they're in possession or there's dissemination. We don't have we have indications of dissemination here that are in the indictment, but not a charged offensive dissemination. In part, that might be because the dissemination alleged was at Bedminster in New Jersey and not in Florida. But there are all kinds of aggravating circumstances in this case that anyone else with those kind of similar aggravating circumstances would most definitely be charged and has been charged. And that and that is why the Clinton defense doesn't make any sense. Right? And that's why the Biden defense doesn't make any sense. They're still making it, it which leads us to Donald Trump's strategy now, which seems to be he has a couple of different ways out of this at this point. One of them is that the judge in this case, who seems to have a history and seems to have a history that's very pro-Trump, basically erases the case, a directed verdict or messes with the timing or some, somehow makes the case go away. That's one strategy. Strategy number two is getting elected president, which means everything's on the line. Be elected president and pardoning himself. And the third is plead out. <laughs> I mean, do you see any, uh, because though I can't think of a fourth. I can't imagine Donald Trump ever pleading guilty to any crime. Yeah. Um, well, he confesses to them, but I can't imagine him in a court of law him actually pleading guilty. And in terms of this case, you know, many people say there's no way it can be tried before the election. I think the special counsel is going to try it. We will know immediately. I've appeared before a number of judges. You know immediately the first day you appear in that courtroom how the judge is going to be. So we will know. Is she going to be someone who's going to move the case along? Yeah. Or is she going to try to delay it? Because when it's delayed, it's not the defense attorney or the prosecutors. Judges are the ones that delay the trial. And could they back up and say, if she messes with the case, just go ahead and charge in New Jersey for dissemination? Because that's not been charged yet. No. Well, they could. But what they could do if she, you know, there's a, a question about whether or not they should ask for her to recuse herself now and do that. I don't think they will do that because that will delay the case. Yeah. But if she does anything crazy or unorthodox, they may, they meaning the special uh, counsel, may go to the 11th Circuit in the to try to get her. Yeah. And, and Claire, last question, I guess we'll go to you, because 
it, unfortunately, the disinformation from the right is seeping in and it is effective because they just what about it? And they mentioned Biden. They never mentioned Pence and they mentioned Clinton. And that has been the strategy on the Hill. It's not a legal strategy because it won't help them in court. But Donald Trump, it, the, the irony here is that he could win the politics of this even as he's getting convicted. No question about it. Um, his plan A is to stall the case, and he's not running for president. He's running for pardon. Plan B is what I'm most worried about. That is, you, he is trying to go for what we call jury nullification. Mm-hmm. He is trying to put enough lies out there, and he has enough people that believe his lies, that he is hoping he gets one or two of them on the jury. Right. Um, and that they could come on the jury and lie to the court about whether or not they could be fair. They could insert themselves in a jury down in Florida and they could refuse to convict him. And that would be a hung jury. Uh, so he is going to continue to spew the lies. It's going to seep in to the, those people who refuse to read the indictment or see the facts. And that's what I'm most worried about and is the, a hung jury. And the only party that gets to talk is Trump. The other side is only speaking through the indictment. So he has something of an advantage there. Former senator and former prosecutor Claire McCaskill, Mary McCord and Catherine Christian. Thank you all. And up next, Trump's allies and defenders adopt their hero's favorite defense. He didn't do it. But even if he did it, it's OK, because, you know, he used to be the president. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. So you can tell how serious this federal indictment is by watching how Republicans are dealing with it. And they fall into two general groups. There are his domestic or his dogmatic followers who ignore the facts uh, that Trump is being charged for hiding multiple classified documents from the Department of Justice, even when they politely ask for the back. No, no, let's just ignore the obvious and inject a heavy dose of whataboutism. Who better to do that than the Speaker of the House? Speaker McCarthy, do the documents belong to Trump? Which documents are you talking about? The documents, about? That, the classified documents. I haven't seen documents. the documents, I can't tell you, but if they're classified, they should be back. And I don't believe the, docu- the classified documents that President Biden has all the way back to the Senate, no, they don't belong to him either. And I don't believe that um, Hillary Clinton, when she had the server and, 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 and bought the new software to bleach it all, is, um, had the right to do that either. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. McCarthy and his Republican buddies forget to tell you that this isn't apples to apples and that Trump likely wouldn't have even been indicted if he had done what his real lawyers told him to, which is return all of the stuff that doesn't belong to you, man. That's simple. 
Then there's the spineless Republicans who want to cover all the bases as well as their behinds by saying, yeah, it's bad to hold on, you know, hoard hundreds of classified documents in your bathroom. But the president shouldn't be held to such a high standard because that's just not fair. There's not even the allegation that it was accessed by any foreign power or given to any foreign power. And you have to weigh that harm with the real harm this indictment's going to do. Harm to our institutions, to our courts. This is a polarized country. They're pouring gasoline on top of. It seems there's two systems of justice here, one for President Trump and one for everybody else. I've read everything I could find about it. I'm not a legal analyst, so I'm not going to comment. They're always wondering about this double standard of, of prosecution, about this unfair, unequal treatment of the law by certain prosecutors. So- mm-hmm. These folks forget to tell you that the guy they're defending spent four years demanding that his White House counsel order an investigation into his 2016 opponent, Hillary Clinton, and for then FBI Director James Comey to literally lock her up. And when he didn't, he wanted to fire Comey. That didn't happen, of course, because his White House lawyers basically warned him that if he did it, he would be impeached. He dropped that at the time and moved on to his next political opponent, Joe Biden and his family, trying to extort the president of Ukraine in order to dig up fake dirt. And he was impeached for that. Here's the thing. When Trump has his back against the wall, he is happy to break everything, including America. His second impeachment was for fomenting a little insurrection when he didn't get reelected. Yesterday, after he used the trappings of the presidency to fuel the notion that he's still somehow president, you know, closing down highways and having his TV lawyer lie on camera, he headed to Cuban restaurant Versailles to nurture the fantasy that he is the target of a political witch hunt at the hands of a Marxist regime. I think it's going great. I think it's a rigged deal here. We have a rigged country. We have a country that's corrupt. He then offered to pay for everyone's food, but knowing Trump, he he probably left the restaurant holding the bag. He he didn't pay the bill. Joining me now are Democratic strategist and MSNBC political analyst Fernan Amandi and Morgan State University professor of politics and journalism, host of the A Word with Jason Johnson podcast. Jason Johnson, uh, thank you both for being here. Fernan, I do want to start with you. I was texting you furiously yesterday, just trying to find out what was going on on Spanish language radio, because we know that is a tool for disinformation oftentimes used uh, by Republicans. Let me play a little clip of something called Americano Media. And this was from Monday. Take a listen. What we're seeing here is the type of thing, Mr. President, that sadly happens in Latin America. And our Americano audience, it's very aware of it. A lot of people have left their countries because of the lack of democracy, the lack of law and order, rule of law, and the persecution of the political conservative opposition. It's happening in Colombia, Brazil with Bolsonaro. Hispanics can't help but notice that it's happening here in the U.S. Are we regressing as a democracy? How do you think Hispanics feel about this? Well, there, uh, there is a regression, but there's been an incredible love fest between the Hispanic community and myself. Fernand, how, how effective is this? Stuff? Well, look, I mean, let's be honest. This is effective in the cult, right? The cult has their own information silos. The cult gets their information from very unique sources. So amongst the cult members, uh, this stuff works. But the problem for the Republican Party, who wants to win a general national election in November 2024, when you tie your fate to a malignant narcissist with 
autocratic impulses like Trump is, then you have this dance that they're not going to be able to do on a high wire without a safety net where you're defending the indefensible while at the same time trying to keep the cult in place and in order. And they're not doing a very good job of it, Joy. You see it in those clips that you played at the outset. You can see the tension. You can see the wheels turning behind Kevin McCarthy and these others because they know the Frankenstein monster that is now out there and about is the determiner of their fate. And they also know that if they pull back their support, Trump will go on a jihad against the Republican Party and or run as an independent and absolutely doom their chances, not only for the presidency, but to hold on to the House and maybe even recapture the Senate. Yeah, it is like a, it's a, like a Gordian knot, uh, Jason, that they can't get out of. I mean, you look at the polling numbers and only 35 percent of Republicans think that uh, Donald Trump illegally stored classified documents. And OK, 91 percent of Democrats or that's expected. Um, 62 percent of everybody. And if you go through that poll, the Reuters poll, all the independence numbers don't look good for Republicans. There's, they're not they're, they're actually making their own base smaller by riding with this guy. Joy, I have an even more important poll. A hundred percent of Americans know that you can't keep classified documents <laughs> in the bathroom. That's it. Like, that's the most important poll. I, I will tell you, when you step away from like people who, who do this for a living and political sophistication, when I just talk to, to, to my friends and colleagues and, and students who don't have anything to do with this, the most simple response people get is, what the heck was he doing with classified documents in the bathroom? I, I had a friend of mine say, is that like the, the, the knock list from Mission Impossible? We've, we've already seen evidence that we've had CIA agents and people captured mysteriously ever since Donald Trump had this information. This is bad. There is no version of this that can be sold next year. And the Republican Party knows that this guy is an absolute anvil on their necks. And Joy, here's the thing. Regardless of what ends up happening in a presidential election, and as of right now, my guess would be that Joe Biden ends up beating Donald Trump again. Trump has never gotten the majority of the popular vote. Most people don't like him. The Republicans have three chances to try and take the Senate next year. Only three. They got Manchin, Tester, Sherrod Brown. If you've got Donald Trump on the ballot, two out of those three guys are going to keep their jobs. And if they don't get the, if they don't knock out these senators in the 2024 election, they're not going to be able to get them for another six years because you don't have any other sort of vulnerable Democrats in the Senate. That's how bad this is. They are connected to a man who is not only a malignant narcissist, who's not only tried to take over the country, but he's an idiot and a bumbling <laughs> criminal. And everybody who's an independent or any kind of voter can see that. And yet, and yet, Fernand, even the governor of Georgia, who the media tries to paint as some sort of normie, even though he's a voting suppressing, uh, vote suppressing voter. Uh, it says, you know, I'll vote for him, though, if he's the nominee. They're all lashed to him and all the nominees are essentially promising to pardon him. And that is their strategy. We swear we'll pardon him. And yet, like 40 people are running against him. The mayor of Miami, um, Fra Francis Suarez, just jumped in. So I, I can't help, you know, most of America has no idea who Francis Suarez is. They're not going to have any idea when this is over because he's not going anywhere. But just just to make it clear, Francis Suarez voted for Andrew Gillum. He voted for Hillary Clinton. He voted for Joe Biden. But when asked the other day, would you support Joe uh, Donald Trump now? He actually came out and said yes after supporting Hillary and Biden and Andrew Gillum against Ron DeSantis. So, I mean, it, it's it's a joke. The truth of the matter is, remember, they're doing, in essence, Donald Trump's bidding by getting in this race. Every new candidate that gets in this race just means that the hardcore white molt, molten lava core of the cult is going to burn brighter and stronger for Trump 
And right. he's counting on that to capture this nomination. And the, the thing is, Jason, none of the other candidates except Chris Christie is presenting a plausible alternative to sucking up to Trump. Even DeSantis is basically like, I'll pardon him. Like, there's nobody, there's nothing else other than Christie, that argument, and Trump. Because people know they can't beat Trump, that's why you have people jumping into this race just in order to cover themselves or to raise money. Suarez is, he's the Deval Patrick of Bobby Jindals, right? Like, like, we know where that's going. It's not going to go anywhere under any circumstances. And then your front runners, at least by name, when you get DeSantis and you get Christie and possibly Tim Scott, none of them have the background, the backbone to really stand out and say, I'll hold this guy accountable. It, it's not, nothing credible comes out of Chris Christie's mouth because he was a guy who was following Trump around like a lovesick pucky puppy for most of his term, right? So none of them can actually criticize him. And at the end of the day, if you actually consider what's going to end up happening in this primary, every single person who jumps in the race makes it easier for Donald Trump Trump to to win. Republican primaries, it's first past the post. It's not percentages. He's going to end up winning. Uh, You used to be so cynical. It's so charming for you to put Tim Scott as like a leading candidate. (laughs) Tim Scott ain't got no chance to be bred. Come on, y'all. Let's just keep it real. We're not a banana body. Come on. Come on, Tim. Jason Johnson, thank you both up next. History won't stop. None of these people are going to be president. History won't stop repeating itself. And that is why we are in the mess we are in today. We'll be right back. (laughs) Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. any questions about how American politics got to where we are right now. Remember this moment from the 1964 Republican National Convention. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. There is a through line from that speech from Republican presidential nominee Barry Goldwater to the present. Because of the John Birch Society, the far-right insurgent movement that roiled the Republican Party in the late 1950s and 60s. It was founded in 1958 by a candy magnate named Robert Welch, who trafficked in conspiracy theories and denied the legitimacy of his political opponents. He alleged that President Dwight David Eisenhower and most of the U.S. government was under secret communist mind control. He even opposed adding fluorine to the nation's water supply, also part of the communist plot to control our minds through an involuntary medical experiment. At its peak, the John Birch Society had more than 100,000 members. So what does this all have to do with Barry Goldwater's most infamous line? 
Well, at the time, despite the Birchers' growing popularity based on their anti-communist and evangelical zeal, conservative leaders like Richard Nixon and William F. Buckley rallied to boot them out of the party. But Goldwater knew he needed those Bircher votes. The group had endorsed his candidacy, hence the extremism in the defense of liberty red meat. American voters weren't so keen on it, though. And their association of him with the Birchers arguably contributed to Goldwater's landslide defeat and the purge from the Republican Party of that particular brand of extremism. Except it never actually went away. Their ideas are still thriving among the modern day MAGA right. One historian of the group noted at the time the Birchers promoted America first style isolationism and dabbled in anti-Semitism and racism, sparking concerns the society would use secretive, violent means to disrupt free and fair elections and help tip the United States into a civil war. Another historian pointed out a key Bircher intellectual, E. Merrill Root, wrote a book, Collectivism on Our Campuses. He was concerned about how these ideas were creeping into our schools and they were infecting the minds of our children and liberalizing them. Paging Ron DeSantis. If this all sounds eerily familiar, that is because it is another example of the old adage frequently quoted by the great Rachel Maddow. History rhymes. Rachel happens to have a incredible new podcast exploring that very phenomenon. And she joins me next. History has a just weird way of repeating itself, or at least rhyming. That is the theme of the new podcast. Rachel Maddow presents Deja News with longtime producer Isaac Davy Aronson. The six episode series explores how history provides insight into current events. Here is a clip from the first episode. If you have watched The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC, you may have noticed that we often look for stories from history to help us make sense of what's happening now. So today, Isaac is here with this story, this kind of historical antecedent for January 6th. And it's not just a similar event. It happened on a similar date, the 6th, February 6th, 1934. And while this event isn't well known in this country, it's very well known in the country where it happened, in France. In fact, just like our capital attack is just called January 6th, the assault on the French parliament in 1934 is to this day simply known as February 6th, even almost 90 years later. Which would suggest that if these events and their aftermaths really are similar, we may be living with January 6th for a long time. Which is reason enough for me to want to know if history can help here. If the real history of something that was very much like our January 6th can help give us smarter expectations about what's likely to happen here next. Joining me now is my esteemed colleague and host of the Rachel Maddow Show, my pal, Rachel Maddow. I am so excited to get to talk to you. We're just obsessed with the same things, and I love it so much. Um, <laughs> you know, my, my biggest proof that the earth is round is that we're just walking on a big wheel, and we're just going around and around and doing the same things over and over again. Please explain this exciting episode about the pre-MAGA. <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, I'm so glad that you did the thing about the John Birch Society and the relationship between the Republican Party and what they saw as their two extremist wing and what made them seem not ready for prime time. And so they had to have kind of a purge, but not one that pushed those extremists too far out of the town. I mean, I love it's 
for me, that stuff is helpful, not just because history is fun to learn. History, um, I think, particularly when it comes to political science, I feel like history is grounding. Like so many of the things that we are facing are recurrences, are things that cyclically come around again, particularly when it's about stuff that's structurally permanent, the relationship between governing parties and extremism. Like that's kind of a structurally permanent thing. And when the extremists get a hold of the governing party and start thrashing it around a little bit, some sort of predictable things happen. And if you know how that went in other countries, in other circumstances, in other generations before us in our own country, I think it can help us feel less overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. It can help us have more reasonable expectations for what's going to happen next. And it can help us learn from other Americans who had to contend with these things before. I mean, history doesn't doesn't repeat exactly, but there are recurring themes, recurring incidents that to me are the best explanation that we have sort of from our forebears, the best help that we have from them in terms of how to contend with some of this stuff today. So well, yeah, I, I love that you think about these things this way too. No, yeah. I, I agree. And you know, the thing, the thing is, you know, I, I, I sometimes tell my, my Republican friends, don't worry. The Democrats had this problem. They have been here. They've been through this nightmare of having an extremist, racist, anti-black, like really wild out their party. And they recovered so much. They did the black president. They had a black president. Like you can fix it, but you're right. It takes time and work and knowing what it's about. But the idea yeah. that this also happened in France, um, mm-hmm. which is interesting because we do think of the French Revolution, but you're talking about a more modern version of a French Revolution that is very similar to what happened on January 6th. Yeah. I mean, when we think about um, the fight against fascism in World War II, we think about European fascism, which rose during the 20s and the 30s. And when we think about France in that context, if at all, it's about France being occupied by the Nazis. They had the Vichy government, which is a collaborationist, terrible government. But there was also a big native fascist right-wing movement in France. And in 1934, for a whole bunch of very interesting reasons, using involving a whole bunch of sort of a a very interesting big cast of characters. They had a January 6th. They had a right-wing violent mob attack the seat of government to stop the peaceful transfer of power. And it happened on on, on February 6th in 1934. And when they marched on the French parliament, it worked. They actually stopped the transfer of power to the center-left prime minister who was supposed to be giving his inaugural speech that day in their parliamentary system. And they instead installed this sort of pro-fascist, very right-wing government. It, it, it worked. What sort of, I mean, it's it, it didn't work forever, <laughs> but it did work in the short run. And so um, it helps us imagine what might have happened if January 6th had worked that day. I think it helps us realize what the sort of short and medium term consequences could be. One of the really interesting consequences in France is that after the fascists and the pro-fascists did this, it made everybody on the center and the left get over their differences, unify as anti-fascists and force them out, which is very interesting. It also set the stage for very dark days during the Nazi occupation a few years later. And in the long run, 90 years after they had that incident in 1934, France is still contending with it. It still resonates in their politics today. There are still right-wingers in France who celebrate it and tell lies about it and say it was this, you know, will be wild, a great tourist visit (laughs) to the capital that day. So all of that, I think, is helpful for us in terms of setting 
expectations for how it might live on in our politics and, and how we might react to it, even in the sort of medium term. Do you, do you feel like part of what we and what societies have to kind of learn, and this is a very young country, the United States, as opposed to, you know, the European countries that we came from or that or the, the African nations that are ancient civilizations, is that there's always a percentage of extremism and of extremists. They just are. They just exist. You know, the polling for the support for the extreme parts of the MAGA movement, it's always about a third. It's a third. It's a third. It's a third. No matter what the issue is, do you believe that Donald Trump is still president? A third. Right. And that maybe there's some way that societies just kind of learn to live with the existence of a paranoid sort of part of its politics, but not to be overtaken by it. Is that, is that the way you think about it? Yeah, well, yes. And every country is different. Every country has its own history and its own inheritance. I feel like one of the things that I'm starting to get more sort of comfortable recognizing in our own age is that in a democracy, there is a kind of centripetal force where in a democracy, what are you, what are you trying to do? Essentially, you're trying to run a country where everybody gets a say, where all citizens get some say in how things go. There's always going to be some group of people in a democracy who feel like, you know what? I am not getting enough of what I want out of this democracy. And what this country needs is more of what I want. And so therefore, <laughs> we need to get rid of democracy so me and people like me yeah. can run these, this thing because we're supposed to. And yeah. that is a constant tension in a democracy. And it constantly throws off different kinds of extremist movements and authoritarian movements, uh, particularly from the right, particularly from the business classes and stuff on the far mm-hmm. right. And And we should expect it. And we should find ways to stabilize our democracy by not being shocked when those things happen, by learning from other examples in our history and in other countries' history of how they helped those, <laughs> helped extremism, helped extremists sort of back into the governing fold and let democracy stand despite their efforts to undermine it. Well, one way to do that would not, uh, would be to not have a president that's uh, governing from prison. So this is the point where the <laughs> interview becomes a hostage situation, because I'm going to ask you to stay just through the commercial break, because when we come back, I would like to ask you about a theory that you floated when we were on our big set with Nicole and all our friends that I am actually now obsessed with because this is what Rachel Maddow does to me. She says something and then I become obsessed with it and then I need to talk about to her, talk to her about it more. So please stay for just one moment if you don't mind, Rachel. I'm all okay? yours. Okay, excellent. I'm all yours. All right, we yeah. will come right back and I'm going to ask the scintillating question that has to do with what we've been talking about for the rest of the show in just one moment and come back. We're going to talk about that right back. The great Rachel Maddow was back with us. Okay, I'm putting up a headline here, Rachel, and it says how Spiro Agnew bartered his office to keep from going to prison. And I know everyone saw this on your show. You talked about it uh, on our big show. What are the chances that Donald Trump's out, which I had not thought about, I'm, I'm being honest, until you said it, that instead of going through with this trial, he takes a plea with the vow to not run for president again, like Spiro Agnew did in the 70s? I have, I don't know what the odds are. And I take the point from Catherine Christian earlier in your show who said, I can't imagine him ever <laughs> pleading guilty to anything. I mean, that's as, we're all, you know, who among us wants to spend too much time floating around inside his mind, even proverbially? So who knows what's going to happen? But if this is as strong a case as the indictment makes it look, right? And that, that's the prosecution's best case. It'll, it'll get challenged in court. It'll be a, it'll be a, you know, an adversarial process. We'll see how strong the defense is. But if, the indictment is that strong. 
And the Justice Department is going to treat this as a like case compared to other people who have been charged under the Espionage Act for mishandling classified information, then he is looking at jail time. And what would Donald Trump do to avoid jail time? I, I guess, I literally suppose that he would do anything. And um, if it's going to come to him avoiding jail time, he now that this indictment exists, he's either going to have to win in court, defending yourself against these charges by saying, yes, I did it, is not a great defense. <laughs> and so how else can you avoid jail time? Well, you can plead in exchange for lenience. And we've seen lots of people, including Reality Winner, a very high profile case, plead in exchange for lenience and still get jail time. What can he offer prosecutors other than... His confession, his cooperation. I mean, this is a crime he could only commit because he was in high public office. Spiro Agnew used that as a jail, as a get out of jail free card. It was not just that he was vice president. It was that prosecutors assumed he was about to become president because Nixon was teetering. They were right. And in order to keep Agnew out at it, in order tra they traded him essentially jail time for his resignation. I'm not saying that's what the DOJ should agree to. I'm not saying that's right. what Trump should try for or that what his defense should offer it. I'm not even saying if it would be good or bad for the country. I'm just saying the one other time we've dealt with this as a country, that's how we did it. The thing that is so fascinating about this theory is that Donald Trump, he's facing such a string, a miasma of problems, right, from Georgia to New York to everything, that for a blanket non-prosecution agreement, if that is yeah. possible, if they could get Fonnie Willis and uh, the DA in, in Manhattan to join a non-prosecution agreement, I mean, Trump says he's I a negotiator. Mean, <laughs> well, it's I had uh, Ron Liebman, who was one of the prosecutors of Agnew on the show with me on Monday night. It, and yeah. he said, listen, it would have to be a global non-prosecution agreement. And with this many pending investigations and charges against him, that would be hard. But nothing about this is easy. Um, again, I don't know that this is going to happen. I don't know that it should. But I right. think we should get real about the fact that the only other time it's happened, that was the most important card on the table. Prison? Or gold toilet room. Prison. <laughs> gold toilet room. I know what I would take. Rachel Maddow, you are the best. Be sure to check out Deja News wherever you get your podcast. I will be doing the same. That is tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win.